I'm really grateful to our senior rabbi, Angela Buchdahl, for having invited me to uh, speak from the pulpit on the second day of Rosh Hashanah, which in this, excuse me, which in this congregation didn't exist uh, until I was here for about four years, and then we decided it seems to be like a great tradition. Why don't we try it? And so it's nice to be. <laughs> Um, I also understand that it was announced yesterday at services that, um, that on the second day I would be speaking and we would be singing, All the World Shall Come to Serve Thee. <laughs> now, I, I'm not sure which received top billing, but uh, if um, it was All the World, I'm very honored to be a second billing to All the World, and I'll look forward to singing that with you. As a matter of fact, I understand there's a friend of mine, a member of this congregation, who hasn't been to second day services for 56 years. Um, so I'm honored that all the world brought him here today. <laughs> Jewish history contains a tableau of both genuine and false prophets. Swept as he was into the vortex of political upheaval in the 7th century BCE, the great prophet Jeremiah, from whom we read the Haftorah today, vehemently railed against those he considered false prophets. He proclaimed, they speak of the delusions of their own minds. Jeremiah was intuitively wary of self-promoters. For Jeremiah, these reckless oracles of the future were both perverse and dangerous. 1,500 years later, despite his passionate commitment to the belief that a Messiah would come one day, Maimonides, the great thinker, pointed out that the Messiah was by nature reticent. Maimonides urged us to keep faith in the coming of this Messiah, though he said very clearly to us that the Messiah would tarry, even procrastinate, before revealing him or herself. We Jews are a people that love the idea of solving problems of bringing on a messianic era. But we are innately suspicious about anyone who proclaimed themselves as the indispensable savior of a nation, the redeemer of humanity. Our Rosh Hashanah liturgy attests, Ein lanu melech ela ata, we have no ruler but you, O God. The history of humankind is littered with broken hearts and shattered hopes of people who sadly placed their confidence in a trusted savior, who promised that they alone held the key to our redemption and salvation, that they were the one, whether in the financial or political or religious world, who without nuance would lead us to an unfettered peace, prosperity, and power. Not surprisingly, we Jews have our own history of false messiah and delusionary prophets. Typically, they appear in unsettled times. The best known of a false messiah began in the second half of the 17th century. His history is very instructive, I believe. It began with Bogdan Kalnecki, the demonic leader of the brutal Cossacks, who stoked the fury of the Polish peasantry by telling them that they had been sold as slaves into the hands of the accursed Jews. The brutality with which the Jewish community was attacked, tortured, butchered, and slaughtered was a forerunner 
akin to the carnage that took place in the Holocaust. It is estimated that for the five, from the five years beginning in 1648, some 300,000 Jews were killed, computing at that time to one-third of the total Jewish population of the world. In this context, Shabtai Tzvi arose. Born in Turkey, he was described as charismatic from the time of his childhood, ordained at the age of 20 by the leading rabbis of his hometown, Smyrna. Shabtai Tzvi gained regional acclaim throughout his native land. Along with his reputed intellectual acumen, he was also typically described as charmingly impressive at some times and illogically flamboyant and curiously bizarre at others. He chronicled his own fast, fantastic success and unverified acts of courage. When the news of the massacres in Eastern Europe pervaded Turkey and in light of the messianic fervor rampant among Jews, Shabtai Tzvi proclaimed that, indeed, he was their Messiah. He promised to save the Jews. He promised to lead them to rebuild Jerusalem, albeit it was at that time in Turkish control. And he promised to restore the Holy Temple on Mount Zion, even though it was at that time under Muslim oversight. In a public assertion of his messianic role, Shabtai Tzvi took a Torah scroll as his wife in a public ceremony, ceremony under a chuppah. The outraged rabbinic establishment expelled and banned Shabtai Tzvi, but you see, no matter of public indictment dissuaded him. Shabtai Tzvi magnetically attracted followers as he continued to proclaim his incomparable messianic abilities. Every bit of inane behavior was justified by his aide, Nathan of Gaza, who confirmed Shabtai Tzvi's messianic claims and forecast that this was the Messiah who would wrest authority and the crown away from the ruling sultan. Finally, even the sultan had enough of him, arrested Shabtai Tzvi and offered him a simple binary choice, convert to Islam, or die. Under that threat, Shabtai Tzvi recanted all messianic pretensions, threw off his Jewish garb, donned a turban and a robe, and effectively and politically converted to Islam, along with his wife and 300 families of his followers. But despite his conversion, and without a hint of shame, Shabtai Tzvi continued to nonsensically reassure his followers that his public apostasy was nothing more than a ruse to convert Muslims to Judaism. No matter how outrageous it was, his self-defense evolved as was necessary, and he was believed. According to the classic book, When Prophecy Fails, when people have emotionally and by action committed themselves to prophetic and messianic figures whose prophecy has failed, those followers, rather than give up, become even more fervent and passionate in their missionary zeal. As proof of that theory, 
there are still, by some estimates, 100,000 people in Turkey today who continue to practice Islam in public, but also continue to believe that Shab Taitsvi is the Messiah. Facts are irrelevant to some believers. Throughout our history, we have witnessed self-proclaimed prophets tainted by self-aggrandizing delusion. But fortunately, and on the other hand, there is a very different kind of prophet who is blessedly cast in the biblical mode of prophets who speak truth, seek justice, and radiate decency. These are prophets who throughout their lives sublimely blaze paths of righteousness, patching the brokenness of our world while waiting for the rest of us to catch up. This past year, I have been spending a great deal of time thinking about inspiring people, prophets with whom it sometimes took me far too long to catch up. In this regard, I use these holidays, as I would hope we all do, for our personal reckoning. For instance, I was far too late in accepting the power of the modern feminist movement and the prophetic leaders that prompted our society, kicking and screaming, to the yet unattained goal of complete gender equality in the workplace, politics, and in personal lives. I, at that time, was not convinced about the agendas of Gloria Steinem, Betty Friedan, Bella Absug, and Letty Pogrebin, for the need for the publication of Ms. Magazine, for the campaign for a yet unratified ERA, for the formation of the National Organization for Women, and for even something as seemingly mundane as the use of Ms. as appropriate non-sexist language. I believe that women of merit would always make their, way, make their way, but I was far too slow to recognize how resistant our culture and sexism is to essential gender equality. I was also too slow in accepting the need for religious celebration of marriage, for Jews independent of the individual's sexual orientation and gender preference. Legal rights were never a problem for me, but I was too long within the fortress of keeping religious, religious language for straight couples and not for LGBTQ couples. It was actually in my teaching of the creation epic and to my Melton class, some of the students being here today, that I was finally compelled to affirm that we are all somewhere on the wide arc of sexuality, each one of us in God's image, deserving of the full benefits of legitimate re religious ritual. It took me too long, and for that I am abundantly sorry. I now choose gratefully to celebrate all people who choose to be married in a Jewish religious ceremony. And one more, I am still too slow catching up with the farm-to-table movement. <laughs> I 
I remember taking issue with a child of this congregation, Rabbi Joe Sklut, who gave his senior sermon on the topic. I argued passionately against what he was saying. <laughs> but the fact is that he and Michael Pollan, who spoke from this pulpit when he received the Shofar Award, they were ahead of the wave. I still am swimming furiously to catch up. But in addition to prophetic movements, there are genuine prophetic individual heroes who stood very much alone in their crusades and for whom it took me too much time to comprehend the precious souls that they were. I think of Muhammad Ali, for an example. So put off by his braggadocio as a young man, I was entirely puzzled by his conversion to Islam and completely loathed his declaration of conscientious objection. It took the world time, for, all, for some only when he died, to comprehend the wholeness of Muhammad Ali, who though certainly not without his faults, was filled with respect for all people, love of others, and good deeds that underlined a level of innate decency. He spoke out against the war in Vietnam when it was unpopular to do so. And he spoke out against racism in our country. And though his language to the end was confrontational and sometimes crude and severe, it was also nakedly penetrating. When backed against the wall by a group of white students furious with his decisions, he had no hesitation to speak his mind you, you want me to go somewhere to fight, but you won't stand up for my religious beliefs and for me here at home? In the framing of the recent riots in Charlotte, the entrenched poverty in this country, the aim taken at, taken at Islam, grouping all Muslims as enemies of this nation, Muhammad Ali's indictment still rings too true. He was prophetic in many of his positions, and he was prophetic in his disposition, and it took me too long to understand him. Today, I have no problem publicly admiring the wisdom and the prophetic vision of the man. And I believe Elie Wiesel, who died, also died this past year, <clears throat> was a prophet with whom the world had to catch up. Reticence to write about the Holocaust was not his alone. Before he wrote Night, it was shameful for survivors to tell their stories, even to their own children. Survivors felt alone in their memory of the hideous degradation they suffered and the murderous scenes they witnessed. They wanted to lock away the horror of it all. It was as if Elie Wiesel said to his generation, we can't rob ourselves of memory, and we can't rob our children of truth. He gave permission to speak about the unspeakable. He imparted dignity and enhanced the strength of those survivors who finally had the courage to tell their stories. And once he began, Elie Wiesel never faltered. He was an elegist for the millions annihilated, and he was a psalmist who called all of us to embody the best of humankind. 
We will hold on to his optimism, and we will passionately strive for courage, decency, and valor to honor his memory. Another quiet and less known but amazing prophet with whom the world is still trying to catch up takes us, for those of you who are old enough to remember, back to 1968. Those who followed sports and were alive at that time may recall that iconic photograph of John Carlos and Tommy Smith when they won medals for the 200 meters in the Mexico Summer Olympics. But their athletic prowess became a sidebar to what happened when they stood on the pedestal for the medal ceremony. 1968 was a frightening time marked by two assassinations Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr. The Democratic National Convention that year was held in Chicago in an atmosphere of rampant violence, political turbulence, and civil unrest. There had been riots in more than 100 cities across this nation, and there were, was unrest both in, in, outside and inside the international amphitheater where the convention was being held. In a precursor to the silent protests by professional and high school athletes during the single of the national anthem reported by the New York Times today, Carlos and Smith decided to use the pedestal spotlight of the Olympics to take a stand for African American rights. In a powerful symbolic gesture, they stood with their heads bowed and their black glove fists in the air while the national anthem played, and so many of us detested them for it. All attention was on them, but as attested to by that photograph, there was another man neither history nor most people paid attention to. He was white. He stood motionless on the second step of the metal podium with his arms, his eyes straight ahead. His name, most of us will not remember, was Peter Norman, an Australian who is not considered a potential medal winner, <clears throat> but that day took second place with a time that now 48 years later still stands as the Australian national record. He was white, he stood motionless, Apparently, the two American runners had asked Peter Norman if he believed in God and in human rights. Yes, he answered to both questions. He believed in human rights. He had been in the Salvation Army and strongly believed in God. Carlos and Smith believed that what they were going to do would be far greater than any athletic feat. Peter Norman affirmed, I will stand with you. But then Norman did something else. He pointed to the Olympic Project for Human Rights badge that was on their chest and said, I want one of those. As those of us who were there who are alive and remember, we know the three went out onto the field and got up on the podium, two of them shoeless, with black love fists in the air, all three wearing their human rights badge. But 
history is generally overlooked, Peter Norman. In Australia, Norman was treated like a pariah. He wasn't allowed again to be part of the Australian sprint sprinters team despite having qualified over a dozen times. He couldn't find work, only occasionally working as a butcher. His family was outcast in their community. When offered, Peter Norman refused the one chance that was given to him to save himself. In exchange for a pardon from the country that ostracized him, Peter Norman refused to condemn the actions of the two Americans who had stood by his side on the Olympic pedestal. Without the country ever having apologized for their treatment of him, Peter Norman died suddenly from a heart attack in 2006. At the funeral, Tommy Smith and John Carlos were his pallbearers, sending him off as a hero. He paid the price with his choice. It wasn't just a simple gesture to help us. It was his fight, explained Tommy Smith. Peter Norman, you see, was a lone soldier who chose sacrifice in the name of human rights. Even today, when it seems the fight for human rights and equality is never ending, and that innocent lives are being taken, Peter Norman spoke with his life. In the matter of racism, he was true and straight without deviation or vacillation. He was a prophet with whom the world has yet to catch up. Lastly, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Shimon Perez as an enduring prophetic voice who, despite all opposition and disappointment, never forsook his unalterable belief in peace between Palestinians and Israelis. In eulogizing Perez, Amos Oz affirmed, peace is not only possible, it is necessary because Neither of us, the Israelis or the Palestinians, are going anywhere. After Perez, Amos Oz asked, where are the brave leaders who will stand up and realize this? Along with Amos Oz, I would believe many of us hope Shimon Perez's dream will not die with him. Gloria Steinman, Muhammad Ali, Elie Wiesel, Peter Norman, Shimon Peres. These are prophets, though hesitant as they may sometimes be. These are prophets, very alone at times, that carry forward the torch of decency, justice, goodness, and equality. So how can we know in our lifetime and for ourselves. Who are these genuine prophets of truth? Unlike false prophets, we will know them when we free ourselves of our own unchallenged personal biases and common assumptions that accompany us through the walk of our lives and of which we should be taking account during these days. 
We know them because what they say is in keeping with the uninterrupted direction of their own lives. We will know them because the truth they speak touches our soul, courses through our being, and resonates with our truth. We will know them because their passion is their, our passion. Their inclination is our inclination. But above all, we will know them because the platform on which they stand has enough room for all humanity without reference to the color of skin, country of birth, faith espoused, or gender preferred. We know them because their only hatred is for evil and their greatest love is for the common decency and destiny of humankind. We know them especially because they speak a truth that is not of the moment, but of eternity, a truth born into creation from the very beginning. And these are the prophets, I would hope, with whom we should courageously march forward with strength and vision for a better world ahead. With God's help, amen.